Proverbs chapter 10 as we continue in our study of the book of wisdom. Of course, the entire Bible is a book of wisdom, isn't it? But this particular book has codified and condensed various aspects of life. In fact, the the book of Proverbs covers everything, doesn't it? I mean, there's no stone unturned when you turn here. Chapters 10 through 19 form the second division of the book. And these chapters, of course, deal with miscellaneous things. And they seem to be, if you're just reading it, and you must be careful about studying Proverbs, that you don't just read it as a collection of little bits and pieces. It can seem that way, that they're just bits and pieces of advice strung together like uh, different pieces of jewels on a necklace that really don't make a connection. Uh, if, you're, if you're not careful, you may look at it that way. And not at first glance without any connection to one another. The first section dealt primarily with moral issues in chapters 1 through 9. The the second section of Proverbs deals primarily with the different areas of life. And so while the moral issues of morality, uh, impurity, uh, drinking, and those kinds of things that we could list, again, lying and all that kind of thing, uh, which are very, very important. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit puts that first to get those things straightened out so that the other areas of life, which are, we, we're living creatures, we do business, we have to make money, we have uh, business transactions with one another, all kinds of things are dealt with secondly. And the wise man gathers for us here and there the choice advice, viewpoints, and warnings about all these areas of human life. The last section of Proverbs that we're dealing with deals with uh, the issues of the kingdom. So these are issues, interpersonal relationships with other people, topics concerning those in authority. Uh, for example, in chapter uh, 10 deals with, with nine topics, family things in verse 1, financial things in verses uh, uh, 2 through 25, all kinds of things, final things in verses 6 and 7, foolish things in verses 8 and 14, familiar things in verse 15, futile things in verses 16 and 17, fundamental things in verses 18 through 28, fatal things in verses 29 through 30, and forward things or perverse things in verses 31 through 32. So we could just take any one of those and, and, and deal with them. So we're going to kind of just look at these as we, as we go down through the chapter. First of all, let's look at family things in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Children are greatly loved by their parents. They never can really know that, can they? They don't know to what extent they're loved uh, until they have their own. Uh, and you heard your parents say that, and it kind of rolled off your ears as they were disciplining you or t- telling you you couldn't go to this place where you wanted to go. I'm saying no because I love you. And, uh, and that's true. And I, I doubt that a person can really know how much their parents love them until they become one themselves. Uh, They are greatly loved, our children. They can prove to be a great blessing or a great burden. We think of the the Timothy. It was certainly a great blessing to his mother and his grandmother. Obviously raised in a a home without a father. His father's not mentioned. So he's either dead or not there or whatever. He's, He's absolutely not mentioned or was an unbeliever. And, but don't you know that Timothy was a great blessing to his mother and his grandmother? He walked in the faith that they taught him. And then you think of someone like uh, the, the prodigal son. What a great 
pain he was and a burden, not just the aggravation of the sin of the son, but the father not knowing where he was, where he was sleeping, what he was doing, who he was involved with. Was he alive or dead? I, I don't have any indication that he heard from him all that, that time when he was in the far country. There was no email or texting or tweeting or, you know, even mail was a rare and, un, and hard thing to come by. So you think of that, that grieving father, uh, with this, the prodigal son. You think of Eli's sons, raised in the ministry, raised in the church house, and who were just perverted and used the, the Lord's work in a, in a very horrible way. And it was a great grief to Eli, uh, to, as you can imagine. Hophni and Phinehas, we could just go down the list of sons and children who were great grief and those who were great blessing. But these are such personal matters, and I, I, I would dare not deal with this glibly. Or when we teach and preach along these ways to ever come across as we've arrived or know it all and know how to do it. Because, you know, people are born with a, a, are all born depraved. The very best of homes has a depraved mother and father and depraved children. And they must come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's something you can't coerce. You can't cause to happen. You can pray and uh, teach and have them in the place where God would speak to them. But we know that it's a work of the Spirit. Uh, and, but these are such personal matters, and I realize that. So when I want to, to say everything that else I'm going to say with that first and foremost, I, I know that when you touch upon this nerve in the heart, it's one of the, the most tender of any that you could uh, string uh, or touch. For one thing, our children inherit our depraved nature, as I've alluded to. And I think that's something that some people don't really realize how horrible a depraved nature is. It is like Satan himself. That we are depraved does not mean that we'll all be hatchet murderers or on death row. But in every human heart is the capacity to do all manner of horrible, atrocious things. No human heart is exempted. In the very best home, the first home, there was a murderer in that first home. I mean, you don't get any closer to the source or nearer to the heart of God than the, that family. And, and for one thing, Adam and Eve were fallen, weren't they? And they pass that on to their children. If there's anything so clear is that the, the sin nature is passed on to our children, we see it in the very first family, the very first mother and father. That's no excuse just to let things slide. Now, I mentioned Eli, but, you know, Eli, for all we can see in the Scripture, never really corrected his sons. He, he just said, whatever, you know, boys will be boys. That's a familiar saying. And, and he saw the atrocious things, and he, he just kind of wrung his hands. He never really dealt with them or removed them or called the elders or whatever he could to, to, to whatever you would do to, uh, uh, to deal with the, the, the immoral boys that he had. And when he heard that, finally, when the Lord came to Samuel and said, I'm going to judge uh, Eli's sons, what, did Eli, what was his response? It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. And so he had spiritual sense enough to know that it was the Lord at work, but just because you handle the things of God... Just because you're a priest or a preacher doesn't mean that you're exempt from the heartbreak of children who will not live for the Lord and follow him or that you do it right. That You, know, you may know what to do and to preach and teach how to do it, but it might not have been done in the right way. So this is not here to lay blame or that kind of thing. We're just dealing with the facts of a forward child and that it can be in any home. There are personalities, there are bents, there are proclivities, there are learned behavior. There is uh, being born into a, a family, if a father has a bad temper or whatever, that's surely seen or displayed and, and maybe acted out by a child. 
uh, some, some behavior is observed, some proclivities. The, the DNA structure is depraved as well. Do you realize that? The, the very mental, emotional, the cells of our body were affected by the fall. So all of that it plays into it. Tempers, talents, you know, we could just make out the list. We pray for our children, and we should. We should pray for one another's children. We're, the Lord willing, will dedicate a, a baby this morning in our, our church, and that's a very precious time for us. And what we're telling those parents, we're going to pray for you as you raise that, 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 that little one. And we're going to stand with you, and we're going to try to be a good example. And we'll lend our aid however we can to, to help you. That's what a church family does. We are a family, after all. And so let's not forget that. It's a, it's a holy and sacred occasion when these parents, what are they saying? We want our child to be saved. We need your help. We haven't arrived. And we, we need all of you to join with us in this uh, holy accountability, in this covenant of rearing our children and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And what they're really saying, would you come alongside us? Would you help us? Would you gently tell us when we're doing it wrong? Or you might say, I've learned from example. You older ladies are told to do that, aren't you? That you have, a, you have a place where you can, you know, you can come along inside and say, you know, I made the mistake of and just tell in a very gracious way. Or you might want to think about, uh, and there's all kinds of ways to do that, and parent, fathers as well. So, and, and we ought to, what we're doing here is not saying I'm not going to be super sensitive and thin-skinned. Uh, if, you, if you bring me that kind of information to help me out, it's not saying I'm a failure or don't know what I'm doing. We're just in the same family together trying to, to rear our children for the nurture and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We pray that they come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and that they'll be truly repentant of sin and, and, and converted. I will tell you that's the first waking thing I pray for my children and grandchildren, that they will truly know the Lord and that their profession will not just be a profession, but they will truly have come under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and that they would uh, uh, know him. I talked with my grandsons this morning. We had a, one of those conversations, and I said, you know, if you ever have any question about these things, you know, please come to, come to Papa, and we'll talk about it. Go to your mother or daddy, and, you know, just to let them know that just because you're raised in it doesn't mean that you're expected to have all the answers or to arrive at anything, that, that in, in, especially the matters of the soul and salvation, you need to have those questions settled. Well, this is our greatest prayer, isn't it? And we, the greatest prayer that we pray for the children in our church. And the Lord has blessed us with an abundance of children in the nursery and in the, in the, in the Sunday school. This is our greatest prayer. The eternal, their eternal destiny is our greatest burden because every one of these sweet, precious souls is an immortal soul that will spend eternity somewhere, either in heaven or hell. That's the bottom line. That's what we're talking about here. And when I talk to parents about the disciplining of their children, I remind them, you are fighting for their soul, not their happiness of whether they like you or not. You know, that's irrelevant at this point. They'll know you love them, but you're fighting for their soul. And when you see it in the light of that, it puts a, dip, a much different perspective on these things. The Lord hasn't called you to be their best friend. He's called you to be their mother and their daddy. And they've got plenty of friends but they only have one mother and daddy that will tell them the things they need to know. As my precious mother used to say when I'd say, well, mother, you know, can you imagine me ever venturing out saying this? You may not know everything. And she'd always say, I know enough to correct your faults. I may not know everything, but I know what you need to know, and this is what you're going to do right now. Well, that's old-fashioned, but uh, this is what it's all about. Solomon had a wayward son, and he went to great lengths to, to turn Rehoboam's heart toward godly things. 
And no doubt Rehoboam is in mind here as he pens these words. And Rehoboam calls him much, calls much grief to his parents. Our actions and our attitudes speak louder than our words, and, and we must pray and be discerning in the matters here and have the Lord's help. So with that in mind, uh, we, 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 we see that he says, a, son maketh a, a wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. He just makes that statement as an introduction to these other issues that he brings up. Then he talks about financial things, and it may be interesting that this may be disjointed here. You go from that to financial things. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, contrary to what almost everybody on earth believes. But righteousness delivereth from death. You see, there's more to it than how much you have in the bank. You're going to die one day. What, what about that? Not what your portfolio looks like, but you're going to die. That's, that's the reality. We're preparing our children to meet the Lord. There's a great day coming when all souls will stand before him. And your sweet grandchildren, your sweet great-great-grandchildren, as sweet as they are, will stand there one day and the books will be opened. And if their name is not recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life, they'll not enter into eternity. That's what we're talking about. And we must never let that lose sight that we want to see them in heaven. Charles Wesley's mother took uh, Erskine's, the call to the uncon- or er- yes, Erskine's call to the unconverted. If you can imagine, it's one of those Puritan works. To, it's, addressed, it's sermons addressed to unsaved people, and she'd read it every Sunday night to her children. Charles was the oldest. And he, Charles Spurgeon, after he came to faith in Christ as a 15-year-old boy, he said, I could not ever let my, my godly mother's words leave, were constantly ringing in my ears. She said, he said, my mother told her children that if we died without saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that she would have to stand and testify against us at the judgment seat because we had been duly warned, prayed over, and taught the gospel. Can you imagine that mother? So is it any wonder that her, both her sons were renowned preachers? Her, Charles' brother was his co-pastor all those years. Charles's two twin sons uh, were noted pastors. Her daughters came to faith in Christ. The urgency of that kind of a praying mother and her testifying, I will have to stand and give an account against you before the judge of heaven if you, if you walk over this gospel that I'm teaching you and preaching to you. Well, he says, treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivereth from death. The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, but that he casteth away the substance of the wicked. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. He that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. And so part of the reason, part of the shame that he must be referring to here in verse 1 is the shame of laziness and, and not working. Judas sought worthless trash, didn't he, or worthless treasure. What good did the money that he sold the Lord for and the money he stole the whole time he was treasurer of the, the Lord's church? Uh, he had the, the purse, and it's, um, the, the scriptures intimates that he did, although they didn't realize it. And then he sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a, a, a common slave of that day, or what we might say a second-hand car you know, in our day. Can you imagine something so precious, the what a pitiful price it was. But, I mean, if he sold him for a trillion dollars, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been enough, would it? But what did it do for Judas but bring him heartache and cause him to end his life in guilt? Peter said, This man purchaseth a field with the result, reward of iniquity. In Acts 1, verse 18. 
We know that Judas threw down the 30 pieces of silver at the priest's feet and that he was given the money he was given for betraying the Lord. And they used that to buy the field to bury him in. He must have embezzled the money used for buying the piece of property from the Lord's treasury over a period of time. He must have siphoned that money. No wonder Judas got so upset when Mary of Bethany came and brought that expensive ointment and broke the beautiful alabaster container and poured the oil all over our Lord. And he asked this question. You can always see what a person's heart is by uh, You can tell a lot about a person, someone said, about their attitude toward their pocketbook. And he said this, Why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? He demanded. Key words, given to the poor. He had to make it spiritual. But Judas could just see dollar signs. He could just see dollar bills being burned, you know, just wasted, just poured out on the ground. But Judas didn't care about the poor, did he? There's no record of that. And, and John, who saw the, the spiritual discernment, uh, the, the, had to, saw it in the spiritual discernment about the truth about it uh, all, said in his record in John 12, verse 6, he was a thief. So if John calls him a thief, he must have been one. I mean, he wouldn't have said that if there was not reason to believe. And he's, he, has, he was privy to that information. Can you imagine stealing the Lord's money? Oh, but preacher, you've gone to meddling now, haven't you? It's one thing to steal the Lord's money back then, but what about the Lord's money today? Is there any difference? Is there any difference whatsoever? My brother Rand used to say, if when the deacons take up the offering and somebody knocked them in the head out in the vestibule and, and got the money and ran off, oh, we'd just all be up and all about it. He said, but greater crimes than that are done every time the offering plate is passed in the Lord's house. And we're not trying to be cute, but it is the Lord's money, isn't it? All of it is. What really upset Judas is that he, he wouldn't be able to skim away mo- any money from the poured out ointment, if they had sold that ointment and put it in the treasury which he controlled, there would have been more money for him. Do you see why he was so concerned? To him, it was a waste. But to anybody who's truly lavished to the Lord of that which is the best they can come up with, they never view it that way. They never think, oh, what a waste, or what I could have done with that money if I hadn't given it to the church. You don't look at the end of the year, you're, you're giving reports and say, oh, if I just kept that, I could have bought this or bought that. You don't look at truly... Uh, spiritual people don't look at it that way. We, we look at it and say, oh, I wish I had given more than that. I'm going to do better this next year uh, and give to the Lord's work. And so that's what he thought of Mary's worship. He saw real estate going down the ground, going down the tubes, where the ointment puddled. But Mary saw the soon-to-be nail-pierced feet of the Lord and a, a, a lavish payment for her sin that she could never repay. And she was so overjoyed by the, the sin that she'd been forgiven. But Judas had never been forgiven of his sin, and so he loved things, and he loved his money. The treasures of wickedness profited him how much? Nothing. He didn't even enjoy it. Can you enjoy that kind of thing, got, wealth gotten in that way? There was no enjoyment to it. We would all be shocked and indignant if someone did the same. We hear of embezzlement and that kind of things, but, but we look at it in this way, and it, it looks quite different, doesn't it? We may not think of withholding the Lord's money from his work as treasures of wickedness, but it is. I, I read in the paper today where Alabama's, uh, yes, this past week, noted only billionaire passed away. And uh, you hear about that from time to time. People with, can you even co- comprehend a billion dollars? 
uh, a billion is, is that a hundred million dollars is one billion dollars I can't comprehend a hundred thousand million dollars my brother Carver is my buddy here he helps me out on my, my mathematic the ge geography things but I you think about it a hundred thousand million dollars is that right $1,000 million. Okay, I got it. <laughs> you can say it's, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean, we, we don't we even think in that realm. And, uh, but, but, you know, and I always think about that, that amount of money and in and, and, and no way uh, putting someone in a bad light for having that amount of money. I, I, don't, I don't begrudge anyone for what they have. I think the Lord allows people to have what they have, and we all benefit by that. When you went to get your mortgage, somebody who had a billion dollars invested money so that you could borrow the money to buy your cottage. And so we, we, know, we know how all that works. But, and we're not of the, the crowd who thinks it all ought to be divided up and taken away and given to those who don't have. That's not, that's not scriptural. But we may not think of withholding money from the Lord's work as treasures of wickedness, but it is. In Malachi chapter 3, in verse 7, we read, Return unto me, and I will return unto you. That's... The Lord always has this very frank deal with us. Come, let us reason together. You come to me, I'll come to you. Draw nigh to God, what? He'll draw nigh to you. No one should be away from the Lord. The invitation is open. The door is, his door is open. Now, you might go to your boss tomorrow and, the, tomorrow and the door is closed, and you might not can get through to him or to some people you like to see. The Lord's door is always open. And he says, come. Isn't that great to know today? Return unto me, and I'll return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, Wherein shall we return? This crowd didn't even know. What are you talking about? Where do we need to? It's, the word return is there is repent. Repent about what? I think that's the attitude of the Lord's church today. This preaching about repentance, Brother Lamb. You just talk about money, as preachers always do. No, the scripture's talking about it, and we must talk about what the scriptures talk about. Uh, but repent. The attitude is, what, I, what should I repent of? Well, then God says, Okay, I'll tell you. Would a man rob God? He asked this rhetorical question that everybody has any sense at all would say, I wouldn't hold a, gun, a God at gunpoint and, and take money from him. You're being facetious, Brother Lamb. That's, what he's, that's the picture he gives us. Would somebody hold up the triune Godhead and steal from him? Yet you have robbed me. You see what, how the Lord looks at it? And I know that as I give these words, all the Bible scholars are saying, Oh, Brother Lamb, you're in the Old Testament. I don't think God's attitude about robbery, about anything, has changed from Genesis to Revelation. Do you? Thou shalt not steal is just as real in Malachi as it is in, in, in John or Matthew or, or Revelation. You have robbed me. What an indictment. You have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? That's just like Adam. Where, you know what? Am I my brother's keeper? That's just like us. What are you talking about? In tithes and offerings. He just plainly... He has to ask the question and answer it. But that's just like our Lord. He does that throughout the scripture, doesn't he? He asks the question and he tells us the answer whether we want to know it or not. You're cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. And then he goes on and give that, that, that uh, challenge and see if I'll not pour you out. Of, prove me herewith. Prove me. So rarely does God tell the creature to prove him. But here's a case in giving. He says, just try me out. Prove me. See if I'll not pour you out a blessing that you cannot receive. There'll not be room enough to receive it. What a statement. One of the most profound statements in all the scripture. And I, for one, believe it's in effect to this very hour. 
But in contrast, righteousness delivereth from death, he says there in verse 2. Peter betrayed the Lord too. Let's not act like Judas was the only betrayer. Peter did as well, didn't he? Well, Brother Lamb, what is the difference? Peter not only betrayed the Lord, but he cursed him. And he denied him. We never had the record that, that Judas cursed the Lord or denied him. He said, oh, yeah, that's who he is, and I can tell you where you can find him. He was upfront about it. But Peter not only betrayed the Lord, he cursed him and denied him. He was guilty, though. What was the difference here? You might say, well, Brother Lamb, what was the difference there? Peter was guilty of weakness, not wickedness. You see, there's a great difference in weakness and wickedness. Peter was a righteous man, even though he wasn't acting very righteous, even with all of his faults and failures, and he was delivered from death. In fact, the Lord told Peter, he's going to have, you're going to have a test, Peter. Satan, just like with Job, he's gotten permission to sift you like wheat. And, but I have prayed for you, and when you have repented, you will preach to your brothers, your brethren. And he did. The Lord just gave Peter a prophecy conference. This is how you're going to, this is what's going to happen. You're going to fail the test. And, uh, but you must be tried and proved before you can do better things. The Lord knows what it takes to, to prove all of us and to, to make us to be what we ought to be. And he, he was delivered from death, he, even with all of his faults and failures. Jesus called him blessed in Matthew 16, verse 7, and in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. After denying the Lord, the difference, you can see the difference between the two men. How? By their actions, and you always can. When you, when you examine the two lives, the difference between Peter and Judas, who both betrayed the Lord, is that after Peter's betrayal, Peter went out and wept bitterly. And this was not crocodile tears of getting caught. He didn't get caught. I mean, a little maid embarrassed him. But, but Peter, I mean, there was no... Uh, he, he was truly repentant because he'd failed the Lord. And, a, and the, when the Lord needed him the most, when we, say, I, we stand up and sing, I, you know... I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And the first chance he got, he did turn back, you know. And a little girl, of all things. This was not a, the Sanhedrin looking down at him, that, you know, or the Roman soldiers with a spear to his throat. A little girl said, aren't you, you sound just like, I think, aren't you, don't you, aren't you associated with that guy? I don't know who you're talking about. No, vehemently, three times. After denying him, he wept bitterly. His repentance was a great godly sorrow. Now, repentance is not just sorrow. There is a godly sorrow. Now, I'm not here to, to tell you how to distinguish that by the outward appearance, but I will tell you how many tears are, are wept, or if there are tears at all. Please don't equip, uh, uh, equate bitterness with just tears, because Judas wept too. And Paul talks about a, a, a sorrow that's not a godly sorrow. It's not a complete sorrow. Uh, a godly sorrow is that the actions behind it are always changed. The behavior is changed and dealt with. And so uh, his Lord prayed for him, and his prayers, of course, had already prayed for him, and his prayers prevailed. We're not told that the Lord prayed for Judas, by the way. But he did pray for Peter. The Lord said of Judas, you are a devil from the beginning. And uh, you, uh, you are going to act this way because of what you are. Peter's righteousness was an imputed righteousness, wasn't it? It was given to him, delivered him from death. And the scripture, we're looking at the scripture in Proverbs 10, verse 2. Treasures of wickedness profiteth what? Nothing. Nothing. But righteousness delivereth from death. 
And after Pentecost, he became the chief spokesman for the church, a pillar of the church at Jerusalem. David said this in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not or does not put on his account iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Verse 3 tells us who it is that keeps the accounts. Look there in verse 3 of chapter 10. The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. The spiritual person is more concerned about his soul than his substance. You see where his treasure is? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, substance is important, but it does not define us. The Bible says a man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions that he has. Now, this world thinks that. A person is great simply because if they've made it. A billionaire, in most people's estimation, is a great person, an important person. And they're deemed to be morally and intellectually uh, superior to other people just because of their wealth. And nothing can be further from the truth. They may or may not be. But wealth alone doesn't uh, indicate that a person is a better person, per se. But, but the world standard is that way, isn't it? If you're handsome, you've got to be greater. If you're pretty, or if you're famous, or can sing, or you have great wealth. All those things. And, but the Lord's so clear. That he's, the Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance as people do. The Lord seeth what? The heart. The heart of the matter, which is the real you, and is, as we really are, without all the trappings that we can put on the outside. Uh, think of Abraham. Now, the wicked person uh, is more concerned about his substance than his soul, but the righteous man is more concerned about his soul than his substance. We've studied the life of Abraham in detail, and he had been, no doubt, greatly disappointed in his nephew Lot, who chose a life of luxury, status symbols, of being prestige, of prosperity, of Sodom over the fellowship of believers. Lot went there on his own accord. He could have, you know, found a better place, but that's what he wanted. And then the news came to Abraham that Lot and his family had been carried away as prisoners of war. Of course, godly Abraham, without a moment's hesitation, he gathered an army of his own people, own men, and executed a brilliant surprise attack at night and came through these warring warlords and scared them to death. They thought there were more. Abraham's men circled the campment of these And they thought there were more than there were and routed them. And Abraham brought back Lot and the captured people and all the spoils of war. No doubt Abraham was drained physically, emotionally, and spiritually after all these events. You can imagine what what that was like. He was vulnerable uh, to Satan's attack and and the devil's always on the prowl. At our most, at our best time, when we serve the Lord with the greatest desire and effort, and sincerity is often, you just need to be prepared. That's when Satan will come against you. When you have worked hard and long and given your best and you've seen some measure of blessing, that's when Satan will attack. And uh, the devil was using the king of Sodom. Because, you know, the devil is not, uh, he's not infinite and he's not all-knowing. He doesn't know everything. And he thinks that we will be just like he is. Wicked people often think that. They think everybody is as wicked as they are, or no matter what kind of outward show they put on, that they have a price, they would act the same way if given the opportunity. And so Satan thinks, like so many people, that in the right, that, that, that Abraham had a price and he could get him. 
Just give me the right circumstance, right opportunity, and I'll have him too. And he thinks that about all of us, by the way. And so he was using the king of Sodom uh, in Abraham's life, but God did not allow the soul of his righteous servant to perish. Uh, Through the king of Sodom uh, ministering to Abraham, the Lord used his encouragement. He spread a table for him. He provided for both his spiritual and physical needs. We read there in Genesis 14. But, but the Bible says he casteth away the substance of the wicked. Remember, the king of Solomon, Sodom wanted to make Abraham wealth. They wanted to give him the spoils of war. And Abraham refused to take away the spoils of Sodom. Now, every logical mind would have told Abraham, this, this is the right thing. That was the rules of war. This is justifiably yours. I mean, you work for this. Why not take it? And, uh, but uh, Abraham would not do and, of course, the king of Sodom loved that because that means he could have everything. And that's, it's great. If you don't want it, I'll take it. But the spoils would do him no good, would they? What good did the spoils of those, those regathered riches from the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? All of it was restored. All the gold, silver, all the wealth of those were restored. But, but what, did it, what did it amount to? If we fast forward just a little ways to Genesis chapter 19 we see that God would destroy the king of Sodom along with all the treasures of that wicked city in Genesis chapter 19. You see how the scripture just comes true in the, the statements of scripture over and over again. The treasures of wicked, wickedness profiteth nothing, but righteousness delivereth from death. How many times was Abraham delivered from his own devices, his own bad judgments, God just overruling and, and preserving Sarah and Abraham? Doesn't the Lord deliver Uh, the righteous from death. In verses 3, we see the guarantor is the Lord himself. Now, we notice on some policies, the guarantee and the guarantor, those big words that that lawyers only, they know what they really mean. But in verse 4, he becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. Verse 3, the Lord will not suffer, allow the soul of the righteous to suffer famish, to to famish, but he casteth away the substance of, of the wicked. In verse 3, we see the guarantor is the Lord himself. And we see in verse 4, the guarantee. The, the verse is a simple statement of the principles of good and bad management. We speak of a good business manager, someone running a tight ship, someone who knows the state of their flocks, their inventory, they know how to make a deal, they know what to do, when to do it, and all that kind of thing. And they don't waste and make wise investments. There are all kinds of uh, honesty and integrity. Uh, he keeps, a good manager is someone who keeps tight control over all aspects of his business. He pays attention to cost and to pricing. He's diligent and, and makes money. But the man who runs his business with a slack hand often goes bankrupt. And verse 5 tells us about the work, uh, about work and laziness. In other words, the old saying, make hay while the sun shines. He that gathereth in summer is a wise son. But he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. There's a time to work, isn't there? There are seasons in life. There are, you may, people in certain businesses will say, well, this is our slow time of the year, or we're about to go into our hectic time of the year. They know the business cycle. They know what's going on. And they learn to make it, take advantage of that. They learn when to rest. They learn when to get with it. And some of them are going to be eight, you know, 16-hour days and 60-hour weeks. They know there are times, especially if you're in business for yourself, that it just requires that. Shakespeare said there is a tide in the affairs of men which, when taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. They seize the opportunity, the moment. 
all these sayings are are based on the practical wisdom of Proverbs. That's, he's just re-saying what the Proverbs teaches, you know, doesn't he? Make hay while the sun shines. Uh, that, consider in the summertime when, when harvest is here. Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. All those sayings uh, are found in practicality in the, the book of Proverbs. Verse 7 tells us, The mem- memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. Everyone knows the name of Moses, and it's in a favorable light. Even in all the world's religions, Mo- Moses' his name is pretty much known. We don't know exactly. There's debate. There's some historians who think they do, but the Scripture just calls the Pharaoh the Pharaoh of Moses' time. And there are those who say it was this one or that one, but, but we don't know his name, do we? I mean, that's not, he's not, his name, though he was the, the leader of the wor- one of the world's, or the world's, most uh, world powers at the time, we don't know who his name was. If you go back and people you've known, you know, the people that when you were in high school you thought were the, the, the most illustrious and beautiful and handsome and the, all the, you know, the favorites, you know, most people don't know who they are anymore. Or who, if you look back, if you list some of the Academy Award winners of, Ho- of Hollywood in the 1950s, you know, people would say, who is that? You know, you could say some names that were, they were the shining light of the day, musically or in athletics or whatever, and their name is not even known. The classic illustration of this verse, the memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. I think the classic illustration of this is in Luke chapter 16 where we're told who the, the poor man was who was laid at the gate of a rich man. And if you, if you turn there, if you will, with me to, to Luke chapter 16, let's just look at that story and we see what the Holy Spirit is pointing out to us. Our Lord has given this, and he says in verse 19 of Luke 16, there was a certain rich man. So he was well known, and I think everybody who was listening to him knew who they were t- he was talking about. I think this was a recent death in the neighborhood or in Jerusalem, and a very wealthy man, maybe someone on the Sanhedrin, someone who was uh, well-known. We know he was Jewish because he knew the law. He knew about Moses. He asked for his brothers to, to be saved after death. You know, he's, he's all of a sudden concerned about spiritual things and soul winning and visitation in the flames of hell. But he says in verse 19, our Lord says, there was a certain rich man. And so he, the, the wording of the Holy Spirit, you know who I'm talking about. In other words, I could say something and allude it in such a way that you'd know if, if the richest man in, in America died today, and I alluded there's a certain rich man that's died in our country today. We'd all know who we're talking about. But we don't know who this man's name was. Tradition says he was Dives, all, all kinds of names, but the, the Bible doesn't tell us that. There was a certain, all the Holy Spirit says about him is he was rich. Didn't even have a name. My daddy told me that a good name was to be chosen and, and to kept and guarded and, and to prize. And that all he could give me was his name. And, uh, but here, this rich man's name is unknown. He was clothed in purple, the purple dye that was bought to stain. Only the rich, very rich, had purple clothes. That's why when they put the purple robe on our Lord, it was a mockery. He, had no, he didn't have anything, did he? But that purple robe was to, to point. He's a king. He didn't have anything purple, let alone money. He's not a king. So they gave him a purple robe. This rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen, not just the rough uh, uh, woven cloth that, that people, the finest linen, and fared sumptuously every day. His every meal was a feast. I mean, he, had nothing, he didn't ever think about it. This man 
was wealthy. Probably had his own cook and just picked from the menu or told him what he wanted to, to, for him to make. And there was a certain beggar, just as, just as real as the other man. You get the idea. These are real. This is not a parable. These are real people. Certain beggar, we know what his name was. You know why? Because his name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. This certain man's name, poor man, was Lazarus. He was a, 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 laid at the gate full of sores, must have had leprosy. And he was placed every day where hopefully that rich man coming and going would be kind to him and give him some food or something. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. A very vivid picture of this man's suffering. It, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The Bible tells us exactly he went uh, to heaven. There was no... Uh, there was no holding tank. There was no waiting trial for the soul sleep till the, till the body got, was resurrected. He went to, to paradise. He went to heaven. He was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died also. Both of them died. It is a point unto man what? Wants to die. And that after that, there's a big difference. Now, we see here so many things. This man's wealth didn't matter one bit in hell. They didn't say, oh, you know, this world puts rich people on a pedestal here, but in hell they don't care. It doesn't matter. It won't buy your way out of there. It won't buy you into heaven, and it won't buy you out of hell. You could say, oh, I've got all kinds of investments back home. My my, uh, toilet seat is covered in gold. It doesn't matter. We don't need those kind of things here. You didn't need them in that life, and they won't help you in this this life. It doesn't matter how much gold you have. uh, The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. He immediately, too, the the poor man immediately went to, to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man who was lost, he wasn't lost because he was rich. He just happened to be rich and lost, and he, uh, being in torments in hell, immediately to hell, he didn't go and wait till they deemed him bad enough to go there. He, was, he went directly to the, the torments of hell and see Abraham afar off. Evidently, one of the torments of hell is having a consciousness of what's happening to the blessed. blessed. In this story, our, our lesson that our Lord gives, the, the rich man, though he was in torments, had a perception or knowledge, however it was given, of the blessedness of the, the beggar. Can you imagine the grand reception that he had? The angels of heaven rejoicing, the glories of that place. And compared to his mansion here on earth, his mansion was like a shack compared to what Lazarus was being welcomed to. And Lazarus, and the, the phrase in the bosom of Abraham was a, was a Jewish saying which meant all things good. Like we said, that, 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 we said that was like the Garden of Eden or that was heaven on earth. I went to paradise. We use that as an expression of something beautiful, the Bahamas, someplace, idyllic place. Well, the bosom of Abraham was everything good in the Jewish mindset. You couldn't get any better than the bosom of Abraham. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And, La- and send Lazarus. He, he'll be a good soul winner. He'll go and witness to my brothers. And uh, he, he, he said, you, in verse 25, he's praying that Lazarus would give him something to, to drink. Abraham said in verse 25, Remember that thou had in thy lifetime received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. These pleasures on earth and these burdens, on, his leprosy only lasted how long? As long as it was this life. This is all the hell that that poor man knew. 
But it was all the heaven that that rich man was ever going to know. There's so many other lessons that we could learn there. But the Bible says the memory of the just is blessed. When I say Lazarus, we think of two men in the Bible. We think of one who was raised from the dead. And we think of this poor man who went to heaven and enjoyed all things good. But the name of the wicked shall rot. What a horrible. Think of rotten things. A rotten peach. You ever stepped on a rotten fruit out in the yard or something rotten in your refrigerator? Rotten. A rotting animal that's been run over outside and you smell it. How horrible. Rolandus gross. A, a rotten memory of your life being lived and being cast into hell. What a horrible, terrible thing that is. The memory of the just is blessed. Lazarus wasn't on the, the get rich or, or the top ten Forbes 500 list down here, the rich and famous but his name was recorded in the Lamb's book of life. And that's why it was recorded here for us. And that's all that matters. Let's pray. Now, Lord, thank you for your word. And the lessons you've taught us today may be profitable for us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.